The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Welcome aboard a post-primary State House Takeout. And uh, in normal times, we'd all be sitting in the newsroom, uh, sharing our thoughts with each other about how all the races went. And this year, we uh, we waited until Friday to gather together virtually to to toss around some of the results. Uh, joining us is the full suite of Statehouse News Service reporters: Chris Lasinski, Colin Young, Katie Lannon, and Matthew Murphy. Hi, folks. Hey, Sam. Howdy. Good morning. Blame Matt because he's in trouble. Matt's in trouble. I'm in trouble. I just noticed you used his full name. You're Matthew. So. Oh. Uh, yeah. I, I I usually resort to Matthew. As long as he doesn't podcast. drop the the Thomas middle name in there, I think I'm okay. Uh, duly noted. All right. <laughs> Uh, I would imagine that a lot of our listeners are in the same boat where normally the next day they would have been around the water cooler or or chatting with friends uh, and, and, and talking about how it all went. And uh, maybe some of uh, some of the layman's analysis is kind of uh, backed up this year. But uh, we're here to give you our takes on the takeout this week. And let's start with this. Um, there's been a term thrown around a lot in the press uh, over the last week about record turnout. Um, but there's a little nuance here that we should be clear on about what constitutes uh, a record turnout. And it seems we are poised to, um, Matthew Thomas Murphy informs me, we, we might be poised to, uh, to break one record. But um, uh, guys, what, what is the record turnout that we're looking at this year? Yeah, well, since you prompted me, Sam, I, I guess I'll take the first stab at that. I, I think coming into this, you know, Secretary Galvin uh, was predicting high turnout. Uh, he wasn't sure if it was going to eclipse what was uh, the high water mark, so to speak, in 1990 for a, a state primary election. Uh, and so, you know, people were looking uh, ahead of Tuesday uh, at state primary elections, state primary elections in presidential years versus gubernatorial years. But it does look like when the dust settles and these votes are finalized, that uh, the tally will show that uh, over 1.5 million registered voters in Massachusetts uh, did cast their ballots either by mail or early or in person on Tuesday. And that would be in raw numbers, the most that have ever participated in uh, a state uh, primary. Uh, now, it will not eclipse the 1990 mark for percentage of registered voters uh, to participate. Uh, the turnout back uh, then, a few decades ago, was uh, around 50%, which is uh, kind of remarkable when you look at uh, some of the low turnout percentages in recent elections that have been in the teens, uh, it looks like this cycle will probably finish uh, somewhere north of 30, 32 percent, which is uh, still a respectable number. Again, uh, if you look at where we've been uh, the past few cycles. Katie? And I just think, you know, to, to Matt's point, I think we've heard a lot this week of people talking about kind of the the different kinds of elections uh you know, turnout in a general versus primary versus state primary in a presidential year. And if you look at 2016, for comparison, the last state primary in an election year, the turnout was really low. It was it was less than 9 percent. 
Um, it was 386,000 people roughly voted in that primary. And that was, you know, I think you can probably make some comparisons between 2016 and, and 20, whatever current year it is, 2020. I think it's still 2020, but it's been going on for a while. Yeah, I, I got stuck there for a second, but it is, in fact, 2020. Um, you know, people were interested in that presidential election, too. So it's it's really interesting to think about what, what might have been different this year. And, of course, um, the, the way people are voting is probably the biggest thing that's different. Um, also, the pandemic. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, I'll, I'll offer as an aside that... I, uh, I belong to a nonprofit organization that has an election every year and uh, normally turnout is around 30% of people who show up to the meeting. This year turnout was almost 100% because we all voted through the mail uh, and it really boosted more participation. So, um, All right, guys, let's talk about the uh, Kennedy-Markey primary. Um, was, was this the Ed Markey that we knew? Did he, did he reinvent himself? Uh, how, how, how did he, how did he manage to fend off this, uh, this young challenger, uh, Colin A. Young, you, you collaborated on the election night story. Um, how, how did Marky do it? Uh, well, it looked to me like he did it by, by really kind of running up the score in, um, some places that you would, uh, expect that he would traditionally do well in some of the, uh, sort of liberal enclaves out in the, the Western part of the state. Uh, where you would probably expect that uh, Ed Markey uh, would win, but it looked to me like he really ran up the score there, um, which you know obviously boosted his overall vote uh, total and helped um, sort of defend against some of the places where uh, Joe Kennedy did well down in southeastern Mass, especially. Yeah, I noticed that Kennedy also did fairly well in the uh, in the central part of the state. Yeah, I think he, he won Worcester, which was a city that he had made a, a fairly big play for late in the uh, late in the race. It, it did look uh, a lot. Uh, if you take a look at the map that uh, Kennedy did do very well in his congressional district, uh, in the Cape and in some of those blue collar cities that Colin mentioned, like Worcester, like Springfield, Lowell, Lawrence. He won all those. Well, Markey. Uh, appeared to run up the score in Boston, uh, in the cities around Boston, like Somerville, Cambridge, and the more uh, liberal, well-educated suburbs of the city. Uh, but in terms of Markey reinventing himself, um, I, I think he, in, in large part, uh, became a candidate that a lot of Massachusetts either didn't know or, or maybe forgot about. Uh, you know, if you go way back to his original run, uh, for Congress, he was sort of a maverick in the state legislature, bucking leadership and 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 a leader for progressive change. And uh, he may have blended into the background a bit over the years in this delegation. And I think when Kennedy stepped up to challenge him, uh, it, it sort of seemed like it was a spark underneath him. And he was uh, no doubt buoyed by his association with uh New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, his affiliation with the Green New Deal. He latched on to that issue, which uh, generated enthusiasm among younger voters. And he uh, rode that along with uh, a very smart social uh, media campaign uh, that kind of made him uh, this uh, hip, older figure uh, from the streets of Malden which uh, whether or not you, you buy that characterization of him, that's another question, but it, it became 
uh, the sort of narrative. And, and, and he rode that all the way to a pretty strong victory on Tuesday night. Yeah. And when you talk about his campaign, I mean, this isn't just uh, Markey defending his record. It's uh, his campaign manager with another big win, uh, John Walsh. Uh, who who got uh, Deval Patrick elected as an outsider in 06 and uh, uh, helped get Elizabeth Warren elected back in 2012. Uh, Colin? Yeah, I think Matt made an interesting point when he mentioned that um, the challenge from Kennedy kind of lit a spark under uh, Markey. I'm interested to see if this uh, this race, this, this campaign is going to change how Ed Markey uh, governs, essentially, uh, how he serves in the Senate, because... Uh, you know, Matt mentioned him maybe fading into the background of a delegation that had a lot of sort of high profile uh, people in it for a while. Uh, but Ed Markey for, for years was this um, sort of, you know, working on the policy, writing the laws uh, type of legislator. And that became part of this campaign where, you know, Ed Markey kept pointing to his legislative accomplishments. And Joe Kennedy would say, essentially, you know, we need different leadership. We don't need the the kind of senator who, you know, takes votes and passes bills. We need a different kind of senator. Um, but I'm interested now to see if Ed Markey returns to his old self, uh, his old, uh, you know, taking votes and passing bills uh, uh, self, or if this uh, sort of uh, reforms Ed Markey, the senator, as well as Ed Markey, the, the candidate, the politician. Um, and I think a, another thing that's going to be interesting to watch is we heard, um, you know, President Trump made some comments about Markey at, a, at an event this week. He t- referred to him as someone uh, no one ever heard of who was elected against a Kennedy, um, which, you know, kind of goes into Colin's point of him being a, a kind of behind the scenes guy. But I think it'll be interesting to see, too, if we see, um, you know, Ed Markey elevated to kind of that not quite Elizabeth Warren type talking point, but if he becomes another, you know, progressive far left uh, kind of public boogeyman for the, for the right. Um, if we, if we see more of, of that kind of stuff from the president, you know, he loves to, to talk about Elizabeth Warren um, on, on Twitter and elsewhere. And it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if both of Massachusetts senators kind of occupy that, that role. Yeah, that's a good point, guys. Uh, I just Googled uh, Ed Markey's age. He's 74. Uh, be kind of interesting if uh, if uh, the biggest chapter of his book gets written, uh, you know, at age 74. Um, Colin, it's interesting, uh, and, and Matt also brought up um, this kind of lighting a, a spark under someone who's, who's kind of faded into the background. Um, I mean, a lot of jokes have been made about uh, Ed Markey and... Uh, Chevy Chase, right? Or is it Chevy Chase? Chevy Chase? One's the actor and one's the town in Maryland. But um, <laughs> um, uh, I thought uh, David Bernstein had a good take on on his blog uh, that this was kind of like Ted Kennedy in in 1994 um, when he was uh, fending off uh, Mitt Romney and had to kind of reinvigorate himself and and, and light that spark. Um, but anyway, uh, let's uh, let's turn to the open congressional seat in the fourth district, um, and uh, I believe Julie Hall won the Republican primary there. Uh, the Democratic primary um, uh, was crowded, <laughs> and I know we've we've talked with Chris Lasinski on past podcasts about how that compares to the uh, Merrimack Valley uh, race for the third district uh, last time around. Um, 
I would say that the the most noticeable impact of the COVID era voting was was here in the fourth district, um, right where you've you've got um, such a split race and just a hundred votes here and a hundred votes there makes a huge difference. Um, leading up to this morning, uh, Matt, you reported that uh, the race uh, might seem to be over with a declaration of victory. Yeah, uh, assuming they didn't have a, a horse in this race, uh, I think the proponents of ranked choice voting are probably loving what they saw transpire in the fourth uh, congressional district over the past several days. But uh, you're right. If you wanted to gather around a water cooler and talk about this race, you uh, are right on time uh, this Friday morning because it did not get settled until the early morning hours uh, last night when the town of Franklin finally uh, reported uh, their results. They were the last town to have not reported their results. And What was were, going on in Franklin? Yeah, they were actually one of three towns that had to do some additional counting on Thursday uh, because of uh, some, uh, I, I don't know what you want to call it, glitches uh, in the process or uh, some oversights with mail-in voting. But Newton, Wellesley, and Franklin all had uh, some additional counting to do after Tuesday. Uh, Franklin, the most counting, they had about 3,000 ballots uh, still sealed and in vaults that had never been uh, counted. And what we saw happen in some of these districts was uh, a lot of voters uh, could potentially be because of some of the delays in the mail system and uh, were depositing their ballots in drop-off boxes late on uh, Tuesday night. And uh, technically, uh, by law, they had until 8 p.m., uh, to file these uh, mail-in or, or ballots. Uh, they could drop them off at town hall if they didn't want to vote in person at their local precinct. But these ballots were supposed to be collected, delivered to the precincts, opened, fed into the machines, and put into the tally. What actually happened was, though some of these towns were so busy, they didn't pick up the ones that arrived after 5 o'clock and, and deliver them to the precinct. So they were actually never counted. Uh, Secretary Galvin had to go to court to make sure uh, that, that they were on legal grounds to continue counting these ballots. And uh, it all got cleaned up eventually. And when it was all said and done, it, it appears uh, that Newton City Council Jake Auchincloss has prevailed, uh, topping the, the second place finisher, Jesse Mermel, uh, by uh, about 2,000 uh, votes or just about 22% of the vote. So less than a quarter of the vote. And uh, you have someone uh, advancing as the Democratic nominee. Uh, do we think that uh, Jesse Mermel is going to look to any recounts anywhere? Uh, great question. She alluded to it uh, on Thursday that she was taking a look at it. She actually had a petition online to start gathering signatures. Uh, but uh, as we tape this now, she's actually expected to uh, have a press conference in about an hour where she'll talk about her latest steps. Uh, the margin at this point does not appear to qualify for a full district-wide recount, but there's always the possibility that uh, she could seek some precinct-level recounts if she thinks uh, there are more ballots out there, which she hinted at, or if she thinks uh, some people were improperly denied uh, their voting access. Now, uh Jesse Mermel wouldn't uh, commit to supporting uh, Jake Auchincloss the other day, uh, said that uh, he's indefensibly out of step with uh, the district, um, uh, although it seems he, he, he 
may have won the district. Uh, where do his politics lie? Uh, he's a self-described Obama Baker voter. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's a Democrat. He's uh, if you go to his website towards the end of the campaign, there was a pop-up ad trying to blunt some messaging from Emily's List and some other groups assuring voters that he's 100% pro-choice. So, uh, you know, he he is a moderate, more centrist Democrat. He was one of the few candidates in this race to not support Medicare for all. Uh, he did not support ending qualified immunity for police, though I, I have talked to him about reforming qualified immunity. He's talked about not defunding police, but maybe repurposing some money uh, for how policing gets done. So, uh, you know, he's, he's more in the center of the scale. He was a registered Republican for a short period of time. He did work for uh, Governor Baker's 2014, uh, first his first successful campaign for governor uh, before switching back to the, the Democratic side uh, of politics. But, uh, you know, he, he was definitely not among uh, the progressives in this broad 10-person uh, field. Uh, and that played well in some of the southern portions of the 4th Congressional District down in, uh, I guess, down in places like where you are, Colin. Oh, yeah, Colin, you're you're a southeastern mass guy now. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I think I'm, I'm in the, uh, the one uh, city or town that was not won by either Auchincloss or Mermel. Really? I believe it's the only one. Who won? Uh, Becky Grossman took Attleboro. Really? Wow. Wow. Third, third place finisher in the fourth, it would appear, based on the, uh, the latest uh, the, the final results. Yeah. And uh, we, we were looking back in our, in our newsroom chat function uh slack for those familiar with the slack app uh we we were uh, we were looking back this morning at some of the other uh potential candidates who ended up not running um and 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 thinking about what could have been you know um deb uh, goldberg the treasurer was someone who was mentioned as a as a potential candidate uh who else was there I mean, Deb well, Goldberg took a look at it. Tom Shack, the former state comptroller, had considered it. Uh, you had people like um, uh, Speaker Pro Tem Patricia Haddad from Somerset, who would have been a candidate from the southern portion of the district to get in. Senator Paul Feeney from Foxborough looked at it, uh, decided against it. So there were a number of candidates who uh, thought about this race and opted against it who could have uh, change the outcome. Uh, Jesse Mermel was actually asked on Thursday whether or not she thought ranked choice voting would have changed the outcome. And she said uh, she didn't have a, a crystal ball. Uh, I think the same could be said about if, if someone like Treasurer Goldberg had decided to run, uh, would she have cleared the field? Would it have been smaller? Uh, uh, would the vote have been splintered less uh, than it was in, in this race? Uh, a lot of things could have been different, uh, but, you know, they weren't. Yeah. yeah, and I think one thing to look at is there were two candidates who dropped out whose names were, were still on the ballot, uh, Dave Cavell and, and Kristen Ados, and, you know, both of them endorsed Jesse Mermel, but... But still got a lot of votes themselves. Yeah, if the, the few thousand, several thousand votes between them were, were reallocated, I think that's something we, we would uh, can expect to hear the, the ranked choice voting campaign talk about as we move into uh, general election and, and ballot question season. Yeah, good point. Good point. Also interesting with mail-in voting, if you vote for someone and mail it in and then they drop out and endorse someone else after you've already put it in the post. Um, 
Well, let's uh, let's turn to the state house. Uh, Pardon? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Colin. No, I just want to correct myself from earlier. Yeah. Uh, it looks like Becky Grossman also won Seekonk and Sharon. Oh, wow. Seekonk, Sharon, and Attleboro are the three communities in the fourth that were not won by either Auchincloss or Mermel. And huh. Becky Grossman won all three. Huh. Interesting. Um, so, um, yeah, as far as the state house goes, uh, we had all but all but one of the 18 house incumbents on the primary ballot um, uh, fending off their challengers. And uh, uh, one, one senator, uh, James Welch from West Springfield, uh, was not successful uh, on, on Tuesday. Um, but uh, Chris Lasinski, we had talked a fair amount uh, on last week's podcast about uh, Lowell Democrat David Nangle and uh, what his chances were as, as he's been under federal indictment and so forth, uh, he, he's gone. Um, what do you make of it? As, as someone who worked for the Lowell Sun and, and you know, covered, covered the Merrimack Valley, covered that neck of the woods. Yeah, you right, Sam. Dave Nangle, ousted by Vanna Howard, a former Nikki Songus aide who serves on every, basically every single nonprofit institution's board in the city of Lowell that you can imagine. She's a healthcare leader in the city as well, uh, topping that three-way primary. Uh, this was not a guaranteed outcome. Nangle still finished in second. Um, you know, he, he had really... Uh, pace the field in terms of fundraising ahead of this, but seemed to run a more quiet campaign. But uh, it turns out that uh, he was not successful in winning another term following his arrest and indictment on more than two dozen federal fraud and uh, campaign finance violation charges. And a, a really interesting thing there, too, is, you know, Vanna Howard is a, a she came to the United States as a refugee from Cambodia um, after surviving the genocide there and will be uncontested in the general, it looks like, which puts her on track to become the second Cambodian-American member of the Lowell delegation. And when when Rep. Ratty Mom was elected a few years ago, uh, he became the, the first Cambodian-American state legislator. So it's uh, Lowell, of course, huge Cambodian population there, the second largest in the U.S. So it's really interesting to see the, the dynamics there kind of shift. For sure, for sure. Um, and and uh, Dave Nagel had already resigned his leadership post uh, earlier this year. So it means that all members of Speaker Robert DeLeo's uh, leadership team were successful on, on Tuesday, uh, any of those who had primary challengers. And we had seen a fair number of... Uh, uh, folks in leadership or committee chairmanships uh, drawing uh, what few primary contests there were this time around. Um, and so, some of those were pretty tight. Uh, Katie and Chris, I know uh, you, you followed those a lot on election night. Um, uh, what were some of the what were some of the tight ones? And I know we've talked about some of the issues that were at play. And uh, in some races, the uh, the vote on the policing reform bill was was a big thing, but uh, uh, what what were some of the tight districts? Yeah, kind of an interesting night um, overall. Good night for for House incumbents, um, for for Senate incumbents as well. Although fewer Senate incumbents faced challenges, you know, nothing like a, a repeat of the last legislative election cycle where we saw Ways and Means Chairman House Ways and Means Chairman Jeff Sanchez. Uh, defeated, unseated by now Rep. Nika Eligardo. But there were a few that were kind of closely watched. One of the the last um, 
one of the last kind of house races to be decided was uh, Rep. John Lawn's seat uh, over in Watertown. He's co-chair of the Election Laws Committee, which is kind of a, an interesting one to watch. Um, he was challenged by, I believe, a Watertown city councilor who, who was making and one of the things we, we heard kind of from a lot of uh, challengers were making those kind of messages of, you know, it's time for change. It's time for someone who will either bring a new perspective or, or not be in lockstep with leadership. And not not a lot of people who were, were running on those platforms made it through, which is kind of interesting to see. Um, I will say an interesting race was... Um, was for one of the open seats in Somerville where, and um, oh my gosh, I, I've got to learn a whole new set of names now, now that we have some uh, some likely new representatives, but um, apologies, correct me if I'm wrong, Erica Uterhoven in Somerville for, uh, for Rep Denise Provost's seat is um, an active member and I believe a co-founder of a group, Act on Mass, that frequently challenges House leadership and raises transparency questions. So even though, and she, you know, won her contested primary. So I'll, I'll say that while it appeared to be a, a good night for leadership overall, it doesn't mean that um, everyone's necessarily going for the, the, the pro-House leadership angle. Sure, and, and a couple of years ago, we saw um, uh, we saw a few progressive Democrats uh, win election who ran on similar platforms of transparency and questioning leadership, and it was pretty interesting to get to January and see what they had to say in the rules debate uh, on the House's internal rules. So um, it'd be interesting to see how some of these elections feed into that uh, in just a few months. Um, I see that we're joined here by uh, Elliot Murphy, um, a uh, up-and-coming reporter uh, who... <laughs> uh, Elliot, do you have any comment on, uh, on, on primary day? He's speechless. He's speechless. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, I was speechless myself, Elliot. It was quite a night, quite a night. Um, and as, so as Katie mentioned, uh, there were, I believe it's seven new representatives effectively chosen on Tuesday uh, because they won't be facing any uh, Republican opponent in the general election. Uh, now, looking ahead to the general, um, I'm curious uh, what you folks think of, uh, of how that's going to work in this COVID era. It, it, it's going to be an even bigger test of mail-in voting, right, with higher volume uh, than, the, than the primary had. Uh, Secretary Galvin even said that um, he thought that uh, uh, some folks may have gotten a primary ballot, but really they just were interested in requesting a, a general election ballot. Um, uh, just real quick before we get into this, I want to note yeah. that we, are, um, we count, our count is of kind of seven races that were decided because there's no Republican or third party um, candidate on the ballot. There are some races where there's no Republican um, and the, you know, a Democrat will often win over a, over a third party challenger, but there are some that have independent or unenrolled or third party candidates. And so our numbers might be a little different from some other news outlets. I know there's um, a seat out in Western Mass that, that some people are referring to as effectively decided, but we haven't been. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that, but 
now I will step aside and uh, <laughs> let you get back to the, the general and the public. Well, it's, it's a very good point you raised, Katie, about third party or uh, unenrolled candidates. Uh, we do have one unenrolled member of the House, uh, Susanna Whips from Athol. Uh, and I know that uh, so, so she didn't have any primary to contend with. Uh, but as an incumbent, she's going to have... Uh, I believe there's a Democratic opponent. I'm not sure if there might be a Republican opponent also. Um, so, so that'll be an interesting one to watch. Uh, she, of course, a, a former Republican who unenrolled from the party uh, uh, back uh, back a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, let's let's just talk briefly about our prognostications for the general. Um, uh, without without speculating too much, right? It's it is going to be a greater test of the COVID era voting system. I've been kind of thinking that uh, I don't know that we can necessarily call it uh, voting by mail or mail-in voting uh, going forward because uh, so many people have, uh, will get their ballot by mail, but a lot of communities are making you know, sort of drop boxes available, bring it into City Hall, bring it to your polling place, all, all kinds of different options available. So it's more like receive your ballot by mail and then uh, cast it any number of ways. Yeah, drop-off voting drop-off voting. Especially after Secretary Galvin encouraged people ahead of the primary, what was it, a week or two ago, not to mail those ballots back in and to take them in in person, given the ongoing delays at the Postal Service. Um, you know, I'm not sure if he'll have the same advice seven weeks from now or so, but um, you know, like Colin said, given the, the sort of infrastructure that we set up this time around, it's hard to imagine met that many of these going through the full mail system. And an interesting thing about the uh, about the mail, uh, we've been reading a lot in the news about, you know, service changes and that kind of thing, but uh, it hadn't even occurred to me until uh, this week that uh, coronavirus might also impact postal operations. Uh, up here at the State House, I have a P.O. box, and I haven't gotten any mail for two weeks because uh, they had a COVID outbreak in one of the main branches of the post office here in Boston, and uh, they're really shorthanded, so no mail for me. Um, Katie and Matt, any other uh, thoughts on the general? Well, one of the things that will actually be different in November, uh, a little different than what we saw with mail-in voting in the primary here, I was talking to the Newton city clerk yesterday, actually, as he was wrapping up his count of those mail-in ballots that we talked about earlier. And he told me overall he thought it went very well, but he said that uh, in that city alone, he had 3,180 ballots delivered to him on Election Day, on September 1st. And uh, he got all but 751 of them uh, sent out to the precincts to be counted. The remainder were those ones that I talked about them having to count yesterday. But he said you know, they would have benefited from having a little more time to count these late arriving mail-in ballots. Well, in November, they actually will have more time because the way the law was written, uh, unlike in the primary when ballots had to arrive by 8 p.m. on uh, September 1st, uh, in November, they don't have to arrive uh, until 5 p.m. on November 6th. That's the Friday after the election. They only have to be postmarked by election day. So a slightly different procedure there that uh, will allow for some of these late arriving ballots, depending on the USPS and, and what this looks like in the fall, uh, to still be counted. Yeah, and then the other thing to kind of watch for and 
we at the at the news service will certainly be be following is, you know, um, in an election night interview on NECN, Barry Feingold, who's the Senate chair of the Election Laws Committee, said he was going to meet with with Representative Lawn, with Secretary Galvin uh, sometime this week to discuss how the the kind of COVID voting law worked out and if there are any uh, tweaks that need to be made for it for the November election. So we, we could see some further legislative action if the, you know, if, if officials determine there is there's something that needs refining. That's a good point, Katie. And hey, with the September primary behind us, maybe we'll see a formal session up here on Beacon Hill sometime soon. Maybe we'll see a conference committee report. I'm looking up at our whiteboard there. Policing reform, health care, transportation bond bill, economic development, and climate change. Uh, gosh, five areas that, uh, that we're still expecting to see some, some action on uh, at some point. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for joining us as we uh, as we wrapped up all that happened on Tuesday and all that continued to play out until this morning as we think about the 4th District. Uh, hope you have a good weekend. Happy Labor Day, Sam. Happy Labor Day. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.